Okay, good morning everybody. This morning I'm going to talk about Vaden again. No. <laughs> Just jesting. <laughs> this morning what we're going to do is we're going to um, now move in, in a sense into the, into the third of the what's generally referred to as the contemplations. Remember this word I used last night? Anupassana. Is really taking a close look at something. So what we're now looking take, taking a close look at is chitta. Now chitta is usually translated as mind. So this is chitta anupassana, the contemplation of mind, or the very very close look at what is going on in mental states, or perhaps putting more colloquially, what is going on in mood. Okay. So here's a little sad story. You're always in a mood. You're never not in a mood. You wake up in a mood and you go to bed in a mood. And in between waking up and going to bed, you have lots of moods. This shouldn't come as a great revelation to you. It really shouldn't come. It certainly probably doesn't come as a revelation to your partners. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that there is this moodedness going on um, throughout the day. So we are fluctuating between moods continuously. And in many ways, the word mind is a strange word in Buddhist psychology because it doesn't refer to anything thing-like. It refers to something which is in process. Just as a general comment, before getting on to the detail of what we're going to be doing today, just as a general comment, when we start to look at Buddhist psychological... when When we start to look at Buddhist psychology, we're looking at processes. We're never looking at things. Um, just a general comment about these ancient texts is you'll find far more verbs in them than you do nouns. So we're always looking at process. Even what I was referring to last night, remember I said it was an action noun, so it's actually closer to a verb form than it is to any sort of naming of something in some kind of static idea. So when we're starting to look at mind, again, it's very slippery, isn't it? Because it's a process, it's an ongoing process. And actually you're being asked to investigate the very thing that you're investigating with, which is your own mind. So, what exactly does this entail? Well, it really is beginning to look at that fluctuating process as it goes through the day. Seeing what is happening as we move, Chris will talk about this a little bit further, from the sitting to the walking, what do we notice? What is the mood, what is the state of mind of this moment? And again, it's a very simple exercise. Just as we sit here, can you feel what the mind of the moment is? The mood of this moment? We don't have to be absolutely precise. This is not about getting precision. It's just knowing what the mood is. Is it sleeping? Is it dull? Is it desirous, wanting something different? wanting the conditions to be different, to be brighter, to be warmer, to be cooler, whatever it may be. Is it aversive? Is it joyful? Is it uplifted? Now, even those few things that I've just listed here, you will see those probably in your day, won't you? If you think about, about to yesterday and the day before, you will know, even if you can't identify them at this stage, that you have gone through many, many moods. 
moods are shifting, they're changing, they are not static entities because the mind itself is not a static entity. We're talking about something which is very, very much a process. In classic Buddhist psychological terms, it only arises with what is called a mental factor and a consciousness. And it rises, it's momentary, and then it falls away. It rises, it's momentary, and it falls away. Yet, of course, as we all know, we identify with these moods. I know it's gone out of business now, but you know, the toys are us, well, moods are us. Moods are often conceived of as being who we are. Slightly grumpy, slightly joyful, elated, introverted, extroverted. Now all of these sort of mooded states of mind get really taken in as being something that we can identify with and become our identities. Notice again something I was talking about last night something that's actually fluctuating and moving, we're trying to make solid. Trying to turn it into a something. At least I know what I am. I'm grumpy. (laughs) Or whatever it may be. Well, actually, again, if we move in close to our experience of the day, we will see that we will go through all these various states of mind. In the early text, it's often spoken about as being the coloration of your mind. What is, the, what is coloring your mind at this moment? And the, the, the example that's given, the metaphor or the simile that's given, is usually of dropping dye into water. You take a, you know, a sort of vase of water or a glass of water and you drop just one drop of, say, pink or red dye into it. What happens? I think you all know, it will colour the whole of the water. Similarly, take one drop of aversion, drop it into the mind, and it will colour the whole mind. Coming back to a quotation that, that Chris gave the other night, mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is the forerunner of all things. This is classic Dhammapada. It's the opening statement, and in many senses, everything else that follows in that particular text, which is really a collection of aphorisms, follows from that statement, that mind is colouring everything. What the mood or the state of mind, the coloration, whichever works for you best, of our mind is, is our world at that moment. It is our world. So... Again, a a, a classic, lovely restatement of this in non-Buddhist terms, actually, from a Western philosopher. Uh, Wittgenstein, in his Tractatus, says the the world of the unhappy man is completely different from the world of the happy man or woman. As you can see, we're not really talking about different stuff out there. We're not talking about different trees and different benches and tables and the, you know, the accoutrements of the world, what we're talking about is that creation of the world. Our minds are creating our world. They're not creating the things out there, but they are being overlaid with our states of mind, mm-hmm. continuously. We, we don't just receive a world, we construct a world, and that world is constructed 
out of the moods of the moment. And notice how swiftly that can change from that deep, you know, if you're in low mood, notice, you know, if you're in low mood, how everything seems flat, everything seems dark, everything seems, you know, without, sort of slightly hopeless. I'm sure we've all had that. That's the stuff that makes you not want to get out of bed in the morning, when you feel in that way. Yet, you know, you receive, I don't know, a postcard from your best friend or something of that, or get a call from your best friend, and suddenly the mood goes up. Yeah. Same world, different moods, but actually it's a completely different world, isn't it, in terms of the world of our experience, and that's really what we're talking about, the world of our experience. So when the Buddha starts to talk about the world and its relationship to our states of mind, the world is dependent on our states of mind what we bring to it. So with a desirous mind, we have a desirous world. With an aversive mind, we have a world that's full of aversion. I'm sure, again, you've probably seen this in your life. You know, When you have an aversive mind, well, nothing goes right. You know, the world is out to get you in some way. It's, it's just not going right for you. So every, every mood state that we bring creates our world of the moment. And notice the formulation I'm giving you there, the world of the moment. Because that moment can change rapidly. Yeah? It can go from joyful to sad, from sad to joyful. Yeah? Very, very quickly. And the whole of your perception is coloured by that. So take that metaphor again. The coloration of your mind is your world. If you continue to feed certain mood states, well, they get bigger. They get more solid. They get more um, dominant in the way that we approach things. So mood states themselves, just like uh, as I referred last night to, thoughts, which are just passing through, mood states themselves are arising and passing away, arising and passing away. And again, coming back to the one major formulation within the text, to perceive these mood states as mood states, to see mind as mind, as the text classically says. Now, I think this is even more important in many ways, and even seeing that you know, body as body or feelings as feelings. Yeah. Because the one thing that we insert almost immediately into any mood state or any mental state that we have is that it's me. Yeah. It's really intimate, isn't it? Yeah. It's about the most intimate thing you can think of is your mind. Yeah. So it's got to be me. So any, any coloration of that mind in whatever way, any mood that falls upon it for whatever reason suddenly gets identified as me. So I suddenly become the depressive person. I become the elated person. I become the desirous person. You know, we've inserted immediately into that experience that sense of self. Yeah. And I'm sure this will be spoken about a lot more at some point. Possibly, I think, by Chris. I think he was indicating he was going to talk about something like this. 
However, of course, what we've got is simply this coming together of, again, think of this in the terms of you know, classic Buddhist psychology of mental factors with a consciousness and then dropping away. Mental factors in consciousness and dropping away. There's no self in this. But what, of course, we're tending to do is reifying and holding on and inserting into that experience that sense of I-ness within it. So that we begin to, if you like, associate that as being us. Yet, actually, it's transitory. It's something that will arise, and if we let it, it will pass away. So, the, the, if you like, the, the task, not a project, the task in some sense is to begin to spot those colorations of the mind, often to see, again by consequences, the way that we're perceiving. We're perceiving this as flat, sad, joyful, wanting, not wanting. You know, all of those aspects of mind that we bring even in the course of a walking or a sitting, beginning to see it, but not getting obsessed about it. So just as we said about, you know, what's the feeling tone of this? Checking in with you know, physical feeling tones when your mind moves away into a so-called distracted thought. By the way, there are no such things as distracted thoughts. There are only thoughts. Yeah? Let's really make that clear. The moment we add the word distraction in, we've made an enemy out of it. You know, to a task that we're supposedly, you know, rigidly supposed to be adhering to, such as the breath. No. What you have is the breath and you have thought. And what you have in a sense is a movement backwards and forwards between this. You know? So these are not distracting thoughts, these are not distracting moods. What we have is simply that movement backwards and forwards between something that's really happening in this present moment and something else which is going on. And just as we move backwards and forwards between observing sometimes what the, the, the thought would be, what is the tone of that thought when you went to a particular thought? Or what is the tone of that experience, physical experience? And we begin to just begin to discern a little bit about it. You know, pleasant, unpleasant. I won't go into all this. We went into this quite a lot last night. Equally, we can drop in every so often into the practice. Ah, what's the mood of this moment? Yeah. What's the mind of this moment? Yeah. Do it now. What's the mood of this moment? As you sit here, listening to me rattling on, about this, what's the mood of that moment? Yeah, can you feel it? Now take yourself back to whatever. Yeah. So we drop it in as the, almost like an occasional question, yeah. so that we begin to see the relationship between those mental states, of course, and our constructed world. Of course, as the poet Rilke says, one of the things that we find out often is we, we don't actually feel very at home in our constructed world. Yeah. Because we're not seeing it as constructed. We're seeing it as that is the way it is. Yeah. So that sad mood, even that joyful mood, that's the way the world really, really is. No, it isn't. It's the way the world is at that moment for you. 
in your constructing of it. And of course when it changes, when it shifts, often particularly from you know, what we would class as the more positive states of mind, or more positive moodedness of our lives, into those more negative states, there is sadness. Yeah? There is dukkha, actually, to use this word. There is dissatisfaction. Why hasn't it stayed the same? Well, the simple answer to that is impermanence. Nothing stays the same. If you want a vision actually into impermanence, or a view into impermanence, perhaps is a better way of saying it, if you want a view into impermanence, the, most, the best thing you can look at is your own mind. <laughs> yeah. It does not remain the same. It will not remain the same from the mood that you checked in with a moment ago to the end of the sitting. And you will probably have passed through lots and lots of moods. And what we're doing sometimes, we're not hunting them. I was joking about this yesterday. We're not hunting them. We're just seeing, just gently asking ourselves, what's the mood? What is the coloration? What is colouring my perceptions at this moment? Yeah. Okay, enough. Let's come into an intentional posture. setting that intention for the sitting. That we set it at the beginning of the sitting doesn't mean it's going to remain in place for the whole of the sitting, and I'm sure you're well aware of that. And at some point you need to check in to see how, how this body is in this moment. What is that posture? What is the intention? It's an embodied intention, remember. It's not just a mental intention. This feeling of uprightness that we hold is really trying to send that message of awakeness to the mind. So this is really important and it's something worth you know, looking at, observing within the course of the sitting just to make sure that the intention is still in place to remain open to experience, to see what is going on. Really, that's the main question, isn't it? What's going on? <coughs> Everything seems to be so clear, so apparent, so commonsensical that it isn't. When we start to move in closer to our experience, we think there's, there's subtle shifts and changes, movements, the arising of Vedana, the falling away of Vedana, the different feelings of the body, and of course, the, the mind states, which are constantly, constantly colouring our perceptions. And we need to be awake for that, at least alert for that process of inquiry, experiential inquiry, not intellectual inquiry, to go on. Perhaps checking in with the points of contact and that touching that I spoke about last night, that's touching of the world and the way that we're touched by it constantly. We can't get into a position of not being touched or touching. And that, of course, is giving rise to those Vedana tones, those hedonic feeling tones. 
again arising, passing away and we're noticing them on occasion again, not making a huge massive (coughs) project out of this and as we begin this sitting again, worth asking ourselves almost that gentle, gentle question what's colouring my mind now? dropping that into our experience what's colouring my mind now? because that mind is my world and its coloration will be my world of this moment so we ask ourselves what's the mood? what's the state of mind? what's the coloration? again Experiment, see what works for you, in a sense, as bringing us close to that experience. And throughout all of this, there is that arising and passing of the breath, constantly as the background, anchoring us into real present moment experience. when we touch in with the quality of our mind it's not how we'd like it to be but how is it now and we can use the breath body the sense of the body breathing as that constant gateway, that constant anchor into the present moment. When we drift away, remember, not distraction. This is not distraction. This is what our minds do. And will continue to do. So we notice We look at where it goes in a way that's starting to befriend what is there for us in this moment. And we can bring ourselves back after that, that gentle acknowledgement, bringing ourselves back into this present moment. We do this constantly and every so often just dropping in perhaps as a question Again, not intellectual, experiential. How is my mind now? What is the mood of this moment? What is the coloration of my mind? Whatever variation works as a way of beginning to investigate our mind or chitta.
John has described, we can notice that moods and mental states can be very productive of thoughts and perceptions and impulses and words, <laughs> particularly the unpleasant ones. You know, we don't tend, if we wake up in a good mood, to think. Oh, what's wrong? What does this mean about me? What does it mean about my future? What does it mean about this coming day? And helpful to notice, oh, what is it about unpleasant moods? Well, maybe it's reactivity to the unpleasant Vedana of low mood that triggers this kind of cascade of thinking that's trying to solve it or trying to neutralize it in some way. And this, of course, is the insight at the core of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, that it's reactivity to the unpleasant Vedana of ordinary low mood that kind of reinvokes old patterns of difficult thinking, you know, negative thinking, you know, that can spiral us down, you know, where, where the unpleasantness of the mood leads to difficult thoughts and impulses, which in turn lower the mood further, increase the unpleasantness, which leads to, you know, activating more thinking, and that kind of, uh, yeah, it's, it's helpful to notice that in, in just how, this, how subtle it can be when there's a kind of slightly cranky mood or a low mood or a foggy mood and just the unpleasantness of that can trigger a lot and this is what led to the creation of the breathing space in MBCT which is a, a pause a recognising a resourcing with the body an expanding of awareness which gets contracted in reaction to 
unpleasant. You know. And these pauses, you know, in the, in the uh, when we have kind of space and time like we have on retreat, so helpful to take time to pause. And and as as John says, to to kind of pause and just gently inquire, okay, what's the mood? To, you, you may be used to advising people in your mindfulness classes or therapy rooms to do that, and here's our chance really to deepen our own practice of that. And changes of posture during the day can be really useful kind of tag moments for that. So before moving from sitting to standing or you're the, on the walking path before moving from standing to walking or before moving from standing to turning round just to drop in that question okay, what's happening? what's the mental state or mood? I find climbing stairs on retreat also a time. Kind of slowing down, just that's okay, what's the mood here? <laughs> it can be a good good kind of check-in moment. And it's helpful to have these kind of tags because it reminds us to do it. And as John said, sometimes we can name a mood, but you know, many moods are quite kind of ineffable, you can't really say what it is, but there can be, oh, it's like this. This moment's like this. This mental state is like this. And we can see, uh, particularly with the unpleasant moods, again, just how strong the momentum can be to, to get busy trying to do something about it. Whether that is rumination. The mind trying to solve, which is, you know, it's the problem-solving mode, kicking in, trying to solve the unpleasantness of the moment. But also the impulses to do things. And, you know, we can notice that reactivity to the unpleasantness of low mood can, can stop me even getting to the walking path. You know? There's this kind of swerve <laughs> to, to do something else, you know. Or I'm on the walking path and, and there's a kind of unpleasant Vedana that may be accompanied by the thought of a cup of tea, pleasant Vedana, and, you know, I'm gone. <laughs> and... I appreciate how Christina speaks about the walking path as, in a certain way, uh, like, well, it's an opportunity to be pra- to practice being governed by intentions rather than moods or reactivity to moods. There's something about walking through the changing mind states that take place in you know, a 40-minute walking period. And kind of maybe feeling the pulls, <laughs> you know, of reactivity, but just that sense of, no, actually I'm going to be governed by the intention to walk. 
and to fear that when we don't feed moods or feed old habitual patterns of reactivity by enacting them, actually that also kind of weakens them over time. So responding rather than reacting to mental states. And of course, you know, that can involve pausing halfway through the walking path and feeling the feet, taking a breath. Okay, how can I best take care of myself in the midst of this mood? Hand on heart, hand on head. Or, this is a lovely mood. I'm going to just breathe this in and see, you know, how big might this want to get? Or what's it like really to soak the body in this sense of peacefulness? Or this sense of joy? This sense of uplift? Because let's acknowledge that there are many lovely moods. Maybe it's part of this kind of reactivity to unpleasant moods that we end up talking about the unpleasant moods more than the pleasant ones. And actually the Buddha kind of really encourages us to enjoy the, the and, and dwell within the loveliness of lovely mental states. Really be nourished by that. And it's a blessing to have a day when uh, there's nothing else to do other than <laughs> cultivate in this way. What a treat, eh? Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.